Merry Christmas. As our ushers are coming to take the offering, part of our regular act of worship, let me uh, give you a little bit of family business we need to take care of this morning. Before we dive into God's word, uh, the first is, I wanted to remind you, this is sort of our normal, uh, normal Sunday morning uh, gathering, and then we're going to begin our Christmas Eve times of worship this evening at 6.30. So just wanted to remind you of the different times that you can come. I'm sure you've all planned, right? You've already made your arrangements, but just in case, 6.30 tonight will be our first Christmas Eve worship service, and then tomorrow there will be three, and that will be at 3.30, 5 o'clock, and 6.30. So just want to make you aware of that. Invite your friends, your neighbors, make plans with family. I want you to have those on your counter and be aware of those. The other thing that I wanted to, in relation to that, uh, wanted to remind you of is that at those Christmas Eve services, every year we take up an offering for some of our ministry partners around the world. And you'll remember that uh, a number of them have to do with refugees. I won't remind you of all those, but you can go online and remember the three things that we're giving towards this year. We would just invite you to continue to pray about how God would lead you to give toward those, towards those causes. We love to take that offering and then just give all of that out to the places where God commands and leads us to. So I want to remind you about that so you can be pray, praying and preparing. And then lastly, want to let you know about something that is coming on January 6th. So the first Sunday of the new year, as our church continues to grow, our children's ministry is growing, which is a great thing. But what that means is we are pressed for space sometimes down there in the children's wing. So we have outgrown our normal children's ministry area. Uh, and so they have bled into some other classrooms, which is awesome. But what it means is we're taking over the whole first floor for children's ministry. So how that affects you if you don't have kids is that what that also means is we need to secure all that space where the kids are in their classrooms. So from starting on January 6th, you'll find that that downstairs area uh, is gonna be secured where you and I will not be able to get back there. So there's a restroom down there, some other things. Maybe you've used that downstairs hallway as a pass-through to get upstairs. Starting on January 6th, you'll have to re-navigate a little bit. And don't worry, we'll walk you through it. It won't be a big deal. We all adjust to change so easily though, right? No problem. So we wanted you to know that that's coming. We'll remind you of it next week as well. And then you'll see, actually, if you go down there now, we've kind of set it up as a little preview of what it will look like. If you are a parent, what that means for you is, great news, is you can now drop off your kids on either side of that hallway. So there will be check-ins on both sides. Pickup will still happen in the same location as it has on that one side. Uh, and like I said, you've got an email about this if you're a parent. We'll keep you informed. But we just want you to know about that. It's just our way of getting, making sure our kids' classroom space is secure, which is a high value for us. And we wanted you to know about that. So be prepared. January 6th, those changes are coming, and we're excited about them. Let me pray for us. We'll dive into God's Word together as we continue our series in Advent called The Mystery of God. So Lord, we pray that you come and teach us today, Holy Spirit. We thank you that you are a great teacher, able to take your word and apply it into our hearts just as you see fit to capture our minds and our affections. And we pray that you would have both of those today as we think about this miracle that we call the incarnation. We just sang about Emmanuel, God with us. Would you cause it to, to arrest us, to cause a pause and a real reflection and consideration of the meaning of this event. I pray specifically, Lord Jesus, that you would guide and direct our thinking towards you now, that you would use me as your vessel to speak what is true in a way that is helpful. I pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. 
Well, I'm sure that like me, many of you are uh, news folks, you like to check out the news. And so, you know, every week it is probably, if you follow the news, read the, the New York Times, Washington Post, you know, whatever your source of news is, I'm guessing you always find a few headlines that are astonishing, yes? So just this week, I thought I would point out a few astonishing headlines that I noticed in some different news sources that I look to. So number one, I thought this was relatively astonishing. Did you know the Girl Scouts are suing the Boy Scouts? Do you know about this? Boy Scouts are now a change of policy. They're receiving girls into the Boy Scouts. And so the Girl Scouts are suing them because they're now infringing upon, I guess they're after the same people. So Girl Scouts don't like that. They are suing. These are interesting times we live in. Interesting times, right? So that was astonishing news uh, factoid number one. Another one that I thought was really astonishing, I saw this year, I don't know if you saw it. There is a 94-year-old man in Germany who is being tried in a juvenile court. Let that sink in for a minute. For less and less lightheartedly, for war crimes he committed when he was a teenager during World War II. This is just fascinating story about this guy and the all the different like, nuances of trying to try someone at 94 years old now for crimes committed at 16 years old. Uh, even more lighthearted, did you see in the New York Times this week that the Pentagon is making toilet seats that cost $14,000 a piece? I feel like I need one of those. I don't know what they do, but it has to be fascinating. And then even you know, more in a sobering light in the, in the papers this week, actually less in the papers and more just if you follow world news about the church globally. I don't know if you've seen a specific church in southwest China has had about 100 members detained off the streets, arrested out of their apartments uh, and taken into custody for no other reason other than being followers of Jesus, being worshipers of Jesus. And the Chinese government is really beginning to, and we'll see more of this, I am quite sure, in the months ahead, Keep track of it. We'll see more and more crackdown on the church in China. We need to be praying for our brothers and sisters in parts of the globe where to worship Jesus has to either be done in secret or it has to be done in a fashion where you just know you're running the risk of being detained by the government. So the Chinese government in particular is beginning another round of crackdowns on people of faith. Those are some astonishing news stories this week. My guess is you probably saw some other ones I didn't mention here that you thought to yourself, wow, like what is this all about or how did this happen? But as we continue in our series in Advent, which we're calling The Mystery of God, and understanding that Christ is the revelation of God's mystery of his plan to save people, the thing that I want you to recognize that we've been trying to help reinforce in you throughout these last several weeks is this, is the most astonishing headline you will ever see or hear this week or any week for all the rest of human history is God became a man. There is never, will never be a more astonishing news story than God became a man. It's the most miraculous event in all of human history. It is the thing that we celebrate every Advent, every Christmas Eve when we come together and we think about the meaning of this little one in the manger, the meaning of the one who lay in the manger and points us to something that is absolutely astonishing and astounding. So we've been talking about that now for the last several weeks and we've been looking at different aspects of that story. Now, it would be astonishing enough, it is astonishing enough, to say that the eternal one has entered time and space. That the uncreated has become part of his creation. It's astonishing enough to say that the one who possesses all power in all the universe has taken on the frailty of a human body. These are astonishing realities. 
But if that weren't astonishing enough, what we have also seen over the past several weeks, and we're going to continue to look at today, is this reality. that It's not just that, that God has done this, but that he has had this plan from eternity past and has continued to reveal pieces of that plan in successive order so that we have grown and can grow in our astonishment with what God has done through this baby in the manger as we see him unfold that plan. In fact, his unfolding, his unveiling of that plan through men like Abraham and David that we've looked at the last two weeks is part of where our astonishment comes from because had not God revealed to us what he was going to do and how these different things pointed to the outworking of his plan, his, the mystery of his plan in Christ. Had he not revealed that, perhaps we could have chalked it up to happenstance. We could have chalked up what we saw going on to circumstantial uh, elements around the events that we look at every Christmas. But because God has revealed that this has been his plan and that he is executing that plan, we grow in our astonishment because of God's mercy to show us in advance what he was going to do. Some of you, you may be not familiar with the Bible. Maybe this is your first time in church. And so you have all perhaps thought that Jesus showing up on the earth, and, and perhaps you've heard Christians say before, we believe Jesus is God in the flesh. And so that maybe isn't new news to you. But perhaps what you haven't known or haven't heard before is that we don't just believe that God decided maybe the day before to send Jesus into the world. This seems like a good idea. Let me send my son into the world to do some things that need to be done. But we believe that God has been revealing that that has been his plan for ages and generations before Christ was to come. And that that's part of what grows our astonishment. And as our astonishment with God's plan grows, with our astonishment at the way he has revealed this great mystery, as that grows, what also grows, I hope, is a longing for God to be present in our lives, is for there to be a longing for God's nearness in our lives. For those of you who are Christians, to not keep him on the sideline of life, to not say, you know, I, I've trusted in him, but really my day today is not impacted by him. That as you understand the revelation of God's mystery in Christ, you say, where else could he be but at the center of life? Where else should he belong but there? And for those of you who are not followers of Jesus, that perhaps as you encounter this idea that God has been working out a plan and revealing it to us piece by piece over long generations through thousands of years and more people than we can count and nations that he controlled in order to dictate and bring about what he decided to, to make happen. That as he controlled all of those elements, we see his supremacy, his goodness, his love, his mercy, his absolute power to dictate things towards a specific end. And as you see those things, if you're not a follower of Jesus, if you're not a Christian, that perhaps what you would see this Christmas season, this Advent, is that, that something much bigger than perhaps you have ever seen before is going on, and it deserves a second look from you. Now, there are a lot of worldviews, the you know, Eastern mysticism, nihilism, a lot of worldviews that treat the world as if it is a, a cyclical pattern, that all of history is, is a cycle which will simply just repeat itself in perpetuity. Do you, do you know what I mean? 
that we're just going round and around and the same things will happen over and over again and perhaps over long stretches of time, it just cycles over and over. But one of the things I want you to understand, and perhaps this is new news, is that in a Christian worldview, in a biblical worldview, we don't believe in cyclical history. Now, we believe themes repeat themselves over different seasons of history, but ultimately, the Christian worldview is that history is not a cycle of endless repetition. In a Christian worldview, history has a beginning and it is moving in a specific direction. And from a specifically Christian worldview, we believe that God has dictated the end all the way from the beginning that he has been at work to bring about a specific end that he desires for all people through all of time. Now that's a paramount truth of the Christian worldview that we believe. And it fits very nicely with what we're saying here today, that God has been working out a plan, unveiling a mystery through all of history and prehistory. And I'll tell you what I mean by that here just shortly. So, Let's remind ourselves where we've been as we've been looking at the revelation of these mysteries, right? So what have we seen so far? Now, up to this point, we've looked at Abraham and how God, this character in the Old Testament, and how God revealed something of his plan through Abraham. Then we looked at David, and we saw how God revealed something more through his plan, uh, more of his plan through David. But I want to add even a little bit more color today. And you'll find as you come back either tonight or tomorrow for Christmas Eve, we're going to continue to even get a little more nuance in some, of this, in some of this understanding as we worship together. We've prepared a really sweet time for you, I think, I hope, over Christmas Eve. But let me add a little more color to the more than just Abraham and David. And today, we're going to look at Isaiah, who was a prophet in the Old Testament. And we'll be in Isaiah chapter 9 and Isaiah chapter 53 if you kind of want to hold your places. But we'll also have the words on the screen. But before we even go there, let me touch on a couple specific things. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 say this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now there's a lot going on in those verses. There's a lot that could be unpacked. I simply want you to to catch one thing from that. Do you see that what Paul is saying, what he's writing to the church at Ephesus is that God has had his plan to send Christ into the world to save people that he's had that plan from before he ever created anything. Before God hung the sun in the sky, before he made the stars to shine, before he made this little marble called earth and set it spinning in space, before he did any of that, God had desired and deemed that he would save people who had not yet been created, that he would save them by sending his son into the world. Now, here's, here's what's so meaningful about that. My guess is some of you are thinking this question, which is the age-old question, why would God create a world he knew he would have to save? The answer to that question is because it glorified him most to do it. And that's why he desires to do all that he does, because it brings him glory. God created the world knowing that he would send his son into it. From before the foundations of the world, he knew that this would be his plan. Here's why that's so important for you and I. 
It means that God's plan, the mystery of his plan revealed in Christ was not plan B. It was never, it was not his reaction to the problem of sin in the world. God did not create a world, watch it fall into sin, and then say, well, I guess I'm gonna have to do something about that now. And then decide that his plan B would be to send his son. Far from it, friends. The scriptures testify that God saw that this would be how it would be, and he desired from the very beginning from before he created anything, from before time existed, when God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit existed together alone and nothing else existed, it pleased the Father to say, we will create a world into which the Son will be sent. And it pleased the Son to obey the Father and to say, it will be my joy to go. Do you see the significance of that? This is what the scriptures testify to us that this has always been God's plan A. Now, go forward, and there's quite a bit of distance between prehistory now and Abraham, but very early in the Bible, we find Abraham. And let's just do a little bit of recap of what we saw two weeks ago. Maybe you weren't here, but Abraham, his life is, what we, is where we see probably for the first time, there's a, there's a few little allusions to it, maybe a couple chapters earlier, but really for the first time when we encounter Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and in Genesis chapter 15 and in Genesis chapter 22, really for the first time, this is where we learn that God's plan, the mystery of his plan involves sending a rescuer into the world. He promises it to Abraham. And we learn three things about this rescuer through Abraham. We'll hit him quickly. We learn three things about him. Number one, that he would be a descendant of Abraham. That's pretty simple, right? God says, I'm gonna make a nation out of you. And through that nation, I'm gonna send a rescuer into the world. And so we see that he'll be a descendant of Abraham. The second thing we learn through Abraham is that he would save people from every group of people in the world. And this is deeply important because perhaps you might be prone to think that God would have some special people that he would pick out and he would say, these people, this group, this nation, I'm gonna save them. I'm not gonna worry about anybody else. But from the very beginning, we see that God's plans are global in nature. That from the very moment he declares he's gonna send a rescuer, he declares that that rescuer will be a blessing to people from every nation on the earth. That is incredibly pertinent in our understanding of God's plan and how far and wide it's meant to stretch and how you and I are meant to orient our lives around that plan. The third thing we learn through Abraham is not just those two things. The third thing we learn, perhaps the most significant right here at the very beginning of the Bible, is that we learn that he says, this rescuer who comes is not going to rescue you based upon what you do. He's going to rescue you based upon what you believe about him. That's what we find Abraham's life bears testimony to. That the rescuer who will come will rescue us based upon what we believe, not based upon what we do. Now, friends, follow this for a minute because the revelation continues to get increasingly astounding as we follow it. What should happen is as you and I hear that, we say, oh, there's a rescuer coming. It's like the thing, the Christmas gift you got that you didn't know you needed, right? Have you ever gotten something and you you didn't know you needed it before, but once you got it, you weren't sure how you could ever live without it? God's declaration, God's declaration through Abraham that he's gonna send a rescuer is like that Christmas gift. It's meant to cause us to go, I'm not even sure I knew I needed one, but the second you told me I have one, I say, thank you. I never wanna live without one. 
And he's declaring that there's going to be a rescuer. And then not only that, think about how this is, it literally takes a weight off your shoulders and causes you to be able to breathe again because he says, oh, and by the way, when the rescuer comes, you're not gonna have to store up a bunch of chips, you know, a bunch of, a bunch of collateral that you're gonna be able to offer him and say, here's the reason you should count me among those you're gonna put inside your rescue plan. Like, I've, I've earned it. I've been really good. I've made sure that I obeyed this or did that or, or sat up real straight or said yes, ma'am, and no, ma'am. Whatever you think it is, he said, I'm gonna rescue you not based on what you do, but something that the rescuer is gonna do is gonna be so remarkable that you'll get credit for it. He's revealing that at the very outset of his plan. Now think about how significant, it must be. before he's told us anything else about who this rescuer would be, the only things we know about him are descendant of Abraham, okay? That's what we know, we know descendant of Abraham and then right on the heels of that, what does he tell us? and he's gonna rescue you based on what you believe, not what you do. And everyone should exhale real big right there. Because what he just told us is this is gonna be a different kind of a rescue plan. That would be astonishing enough. But then he goes on. Now there's a lot of time between Abraham and David, and there's a lot of things that we see when we read through the Bible between Abraham and David, but let's just look at what we see about God's plan through David now. So we fast forward just a bit. And we see that with David, this rescuer, what gets revealed to us is David. Now, David is, is the second king of Israel. Uh, so he is a king on a throne. And in fact, we're told in the scriptures, he has a heart like God's heart. He's the king God loves because he, he loves God first and most. And he has a heart like God's heart. So he becomes the example of what a king should be. And yet David has massive failings. He has massive flaws, just like the rest of us. He makes plenty of mistakes. But what we find is that God tells David, you know that rescuer who I said I was gonna send through Abraham? David is a descendant of Abraham. And now he says, David, I'm gonna send the rescuer through you. And if the rescuer is gonna come through the line, not some other family in Israel, but if he's gonna come through the line of the king, then that makes the rescuer a what? A king. Makes the rescuer a king. Now you might think to yourself, I. What's the significance of that? We'll just ponder that for a moment. What God has just told us is the rescuer is not just going to be some religious person. It's not just gonna be some person that calls us out into the wilderness to say, come out to me and I'll teach you the ways of God. No, the rescuer is going to be a king who sits on a throne, which means that you will owe him your complete allegiance. And in fact, what else that tells us is that God's plan to rescue the world is not just to send someone to pluck us up out of it, but rather to enter into it and to show us, in spite of all the abuses of authority and power that we've seen over all the history of the world, how power is truly meant to be wielded and how authority is truly meant to be used. He will come and be the king like no king that we've ever had or seen. And Dan did a great job of kind of unpacking that for us last week. But here's what that means. It means that as as we look at this rescuer, we are looking at one to whom we owe our complete and utter allegiance. Now think about the revelation moving forward. We have a rescuer. He's gonna rescue us based upon not what we do, but what we believe. And now what we find out is all the ways that we've experienced abuse of power are going to be undone because he's gonna come not just as a rescuer, but as a king, as a king. 
and we find in our heart, perhaps again, some of us, some of us have authority issues, yes? Absolutely. Yeah, you don't admit it, but you do, right? Like if you're the person who someone says, I need you to do this, and what happens in your heart in that moment is I don't wanna do it just because you told me I had to, you have authority issues, right? Welcome to the club. Some of us have that, right? And that happens because we've seen power and authority abused and, and misused again and again and again. And what we're hearing here is that we are going to experience something wholly new in the use of authority and power. That the true king, ladies and gentlemen, the true king is going to come into the world. And the true king is going to rescue us the other thing that this revelation through David means is, like, it's one thing, right? It's one thing if we hear this person, this rescuer is coming. It's another thing if the person who's rescuing you is a king to whom you owe complete allegiance, but who owes none to you. For that person to choose to save you is absolutely astounding because kings don't care about peons. But this king does. This king is coming into the world to rescue the smallest, the most insignificant, the poorest, the one with no resume. This king comes and he says, I will rule and reign and I will rescue as you have never seen it before. That's what we've seen through Abraham. That's what we've seen through David. Now we're gonna see something even new, even more astonishing from Isaiah. We're gonna go there in a second, but I wanna show you one more piece of color to this plan. It's in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Because perhaps you might think, you might think, okay, Trent, I see how this plan, this astonishing plan, God's been revealing it bit by bit. But now, I mean, it's, it's Christmas. We're among those people who have worshiped Christ as God. We're counted among people who have done that for thousands of years. And so he is, if he is the revelation of the mystery God, then there's no more mystery. Christ has come. It has been revealed that here is the rescuer. But I want you to see that there's still mystery in God's plan yet to be unfolded. And because there's still mystery in God's plan for you and I, we know who the rescuer is, amen? We know who he is. But there is still a mystery that he is working out for you and I. And because of it, you and I should be sitting on pins and needles waiting for him to show us more of what he's gonna do. Look at what he says in 1 John chapter 3, verse two. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Do you see it? There's both mystery and resolution all in this text because what, what uh, John is telling us is, my friends, you know that you are a child of God if you are in Christ. The rescuer has come and if you've believed in him, you are his, you belong to him. So there's no mystery there and you will be transformed and changed. There's no mystery there. But what is the mystery? What we will be has not yet what? Has not yet appeared. The way Paul says it in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is, when I look at eternity future, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, I look as in a mirror dimly, but one day I will see fully and know fully even as I am currently fully known by God. Do you get what Paul is saying there? 
the mystery of the nature of God that you and I fathom, that hopefully we wake up every morning thinking, I wanna know you more. I wanna see you more clearly. I wanna know more of your heart. I wanna look more like you every day. And I get down on my knees and I seek after you so that I might be like you. That this daily pursuit, one day Christ is gonna split the heavens and descend and we are gonna see him. And when we see him, we will be transformed in the blink of an eye to be like him. Is that a mystery to you? It's astonishing. There is still mystery yet to be unveiled in your soul because you do not yet know what you will be. You haven't even come close to tasting the goodness of all sin departed from your being. All the, all the ways that you, every image you conjure up of God based in scripture is a dimly lit mirror compared to what you will see when he splits the heavens and comes down. And you will look face to face, eye to eye with the king of kings. And when that happens, you will become something that you cannot fathom now. As 1 Corinthians 15 says, the imperishable will be taken off. I'm sorry, the perishable will be taken off and be traded for the imperishable. The lowly will be taken off and traded for gloriousness. There is mystery, and that mystery is meant to bring about longing. You and I should be sitting on pins and needles waiting for the revelation of Jesus. And every Advent, as we think about his first revelation, his first coming, remember that he came. And when he came, the angels declared glory to God in the highest and on earth, what? Peace. Peace. The king of the universe does not have to enter the world of rebels and declare peace. It is well within his right to enter into that world of rebellious men and women and declare vengeance, judgment, justice. And yet, it's not what he said. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace. Peace of mind, peace of heart, peace of soul, why? because the rescuer has come to offer you peace with God. Peace with God. Now, let's look at Isaiah. He's gonna show us two things, two more things, as we increase our astonishment at what God has done. He's gonna show us two more things. Now remember, Abraham and David, as we've looked at them, they are uh, historical figures, so is Isaiah, but Isaiah's a little different. David's a king, Abraham is what we call a patriarch. So what we learn about the rescuer and God's plan, we really learn through events in their lives. So we see Abraham, we see things going on in his life, things God tells him to do, he goes and does them. We learn about God's rescue plan from events unfolding in their lives. But Isaiah is what we call a prophet. And a prophet, if you're unfamiliar with the term, is someone that God speaks to so that they can speak to his people and tell them what he wants them to know. 
And so from Isaiah, rather than looking at something that happened in his life, what we get from Isaiah is God directly speaking to Isaiah and then Isaiah directly speaking to us so that we would hear more about God's rescue plan. Now again, I find that astonishing because not only is God saying, I'm gonna unfold events to execute my plan and then you can see through those events what I'm doing as he did with Abraham, as he did with David. He says, no, no, I'm just gonna tell you directly what I'm up to so that you might understand. It's astonishing to think that God would say, let me just, let me just tell you. So we're gonna look in two places Isaiah chapter nine, Isaiah chapter 53, and here are the two things we're gonna see about God's rescue plan. Number one, we're gonna find that this rescuer is not just a king, he is God. And the second thing we're gonna see is that the great work, remember we said with Abraham, that this rescuer is gonna come and he's gonna do something, we're gonna get credit for it. What we're gonna find in Isaiah is that Isaiah is gonna tell us is the thing that the rescuer is gonna do is not gonna be some mighty work of power, it's gonna to be to die. It's going to be to die. This little one, this baby in the manger, he has come to die. Now, we'll talk about the significance of those two things and why they're so astounding, but let's look. Isaiah chapter nine, verse six and seven, just those two verses. For to us, a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Well, Isaiah reminds us what we learned about the Savior, about the rescuer, right? And up to, up to one particular phrase in those verses that we read, everything looked just like how it looked before when we understood through David that the rescuer would be a king. We saw the government is going to be upon his shoulder, right? We said, yes, he's gonna rule, he's gonna reign, he's gonna govern wisely and well. In fact, he'll be called Wonderful Counselor. And at the end, we saw of the increase of his government, there, there will be no end. Like, so... Did you see David referred to in there? On the throne of David, he will reign. So it's a continuation of the plan, except that one phrase is inserted in there that everyone who would have read it originally would have stopped in absolute shock and thought to themselves, wait, did you really just say that? I bet you can guess which phrase it is. Wonderful counselor, mighty God. Now what's so interesting to me, if you study this, liberal scholars regularly look at, this, look at this text and try and figure out a way that those words, mighty God in the Hebrew, mean something other than mighty God. Now the great irony of that is everywhere else, the two words, the word for mighty and the word for God, everywhere else those occur, anywhere else in the Old Testament, guess what they mean? Mighty and God. So I'm gonna guess that when they show up here in Isaiah chapter nine, they probably mean what, church? Mighty God. Now, remember, we are a part of a people sitting here in 2018, right? We're sitting here as a part of a group of people who for generations, for thousands of years, have recognized the truth that Isaiah is talking about here. We believe that Jesus was God in the flesh, 
But you need to understand that for the original readers, for the people that would have originally received this from Isaiah, they would have stopped dead in their tracks because the idea that the rescuer would be a king, yep, absolutely, got it, agree. The fact that a rescuer is needed, yes, absolutely. We have a whole concept for it called the Messiah or in Greek, the Christ. And so that would have been not new news to them, but affirming something they already believed. But the second Isaiah says in chapter nine, mighty God, they would fall over backwards, astonished that what he is declaring is that the God of the universe, not one of a pantheon of gods that are kind of lowly and interact with human beings and do weird stuff like in the Greek world, right? But the God who is the only God who reigns on high, who created everything, is going to become a child. That's what Isaiah just told them. You could have knocked them over with a feather, The rescuer is not just going to be a child of Abraham. The rescuer is not just going to be true king. The rescuer is going to be God. Now, that would have astonished, to be sure. But it points us to something else, right? Now, it points us to something else. There's a question through all of this conversation, and my guess is if you're not a follower of Jesus, if you're not a Christian, you probably have been, you maybe have been thinking this question because I've intentionally left it unanswered and maybe it slipped past you. But in all this conversation about a rescuer, what's the question we haven't asked? What do we need to be rescued from? Now, my guess is, again, if you're not a Christian, perhaps you have been thinking, like, I, you're talking about rescue, that's nice, but I, I feel no need to be rescued. What, what are you talking about, rescue? Why would, why would we need to be rescued? And this revelation that the rescuer would be God is going to tell us something about the answer to that question. What do we need to be rescued from? Look with me now at the second thing Isaiah tells us. Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, verses four and five, what we find is that the great work the rescuer will do will be to die. So Isaiah 53, verses four and five. Here's what they say. Speaking about the rescuer, it says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. There's the key word. What do we need to be saved from? Isaiah answers this with this word, transgressions. It's a large word for a much smaller and simpler word, sin. That which we have done to rebel against God and reject his kingship over us. He was wounded for our transgressions. And in case we might think that that means just a little wound on the shoulder, a little shot on the arm, the next phrase He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. Listen. The first thing that we see in these verses is the thing we need to be saved from is sin. But because we understand that the rescuer is not just a king, but God in the flesh, we recognize that points us to the reality that the thing we must need to be saved from is something much bigger 
much more, in, much more devastating than perhaps what we thought it was at first glance. You see, until we understood that the rescuer was God in the flesh, until we understood that, we could have argued that what we needed to be rescued from was some form of earthly oppression. This is what most of Israel thought when Jesus came on the scene. We need to be rescued from Roman rule, from this oppressive government that has taken over our country. We need someone to rescue us from that. And so most of them looked for a Messiah who was a king like David was a king, who would bear arms and take vengeance on their enemies and set things right on the earth. Perhaps today it might look a little different, but it might still look like believing that what I need rescuing from is just the difficulties in my life. Just the things that come against me that make it hard for me to succeed. Perhaps I need to be rescued from someone who has it out for me at work or I need to be rescued from perhaps this other thing going on on this other side of the planet that just scares me, nation against nation. But what we understand through Isaiah is that this rescuer, because he's God, is here to rescue us from something much more significant than any earthly enemy could ever bring against us. He's here to rescue us from not something external to us, but an enemy within. He is here to rescue us from the sin that infects our hearts and leads to death. And this rescuer is here to do that. And then, and then the question becomes, well, how, how, is, he gonna, how is he gonna do that? And because we understand that the rescuer is God himself, we understand we understand that only he could do it. You see, saying to another human, can you save me from my sin, is like saying from one drowning person, could you rescue another drowning person? Right? It's like saying, hey, they're over there. I know you don't swim very well, but can you get over and save them? The only person who can rescue a drowning person is who? Someone in a boat. Someone who's not drowning. And the only person in all of history not drowning in sin is who? Is Jesus, because he's God in the flesh. That's what is being revealed about God's rescue plan. And then, just let it sit with you for a moment. The baby in the manger was not born to enact some miraculous act of power that would then somehow release us from sin. The way he would release us from sin was by allowing death to overcome him. For the, the creator of all life to succumb to death, this was God's plan. This is what he desired. This is what he worked towards. When we look at the baby in the manger, it's appropriate that we marvel at the incarnation and we shouldn't rush too quickly to the crucifixion on the cross, but we can never let it be too far from our minds that the baby in the manger was born to die as a sacrifice for sin, as a payment for sin, so that you and I, if we believed like Abraham showed us, if we trusted that we could have life in him. Follow the revelation again. We have a rescuer and he's coming. That rescuer is gonna save us. Now he's gonna do something so profound, so astonishing that we will get credit for it if we will only believe. And not only is the rescuer coming to rescue by faith and not by works, he is coming and he's going to be a king and you will bow the knee to him and he will rule over you and it will be joyous when he does. And not only is he a rescuer, and not only is he gonna save us by faith, and not only is he king, he is God in the flesh, and that God will lay down his life so that you can have life. 
This is the mystery of God's plan revealed in Christ. This is the mystery. When we come to the manger, we come to a little one, we come to a baby who is all of these things. Our king, our rescuer, child of Abraham, child of David, the one who will die so that we might have life. Our hope over the course of Advent has been to reestablish a sense of the awe and astonishment of the mystery that God has revealed in his son, Emmanuel, God with us, the incarnate God laying in the manger, that you wouldn't come again another season and look for a little cute story about a baby in a manger, but that you would come and gaze upon that baby and be astonished because he is the fulfillment of ages and generations of God's complete powerful working so that you might be reconciled to God through this little one. And in being astonished, you would long for him. And I mean long for him in a way that says, I want him every day. I don't want him on the sideline of life. I don't don't want him distant. I want to receive the invitation that this baby represents to come and draw near to God and to seek him every day, to place him on the throne of my life and to follow him with everything I've got. Because friends, God didn't enter the world to sit on the sideline of your life. God entered the world to rule and reign over you, over your desires, over your choices, over your relationships. He entered the world so that you might hear him declare to you, peace, peace, now let me be in charge. Let's pray together. Yeah, so Lord Jesus, We adore you. You are shockingly good. You are astonishingly mighty. You are wise beyond all measure. And we want you to have all of our lives. We don't want to withhold a thing from you. Help us. We're weak. We don't do it well. We thank you. You've given us the gift of your Holy Spirit for those of us who have believed in you, given ourselves to you, and we pray that you would cause that spirit to continue to grow in us your likeness, make us merciful and gracious and kind and humble, make us wise, make us loving. Even as we close our time together as a a church family, Lord, and we sing your praises, we sing, pray that you'd receive our praise. Let it come from hearts that are deeply desirous of you. Mercifully now, receive our praise. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.